Hey there, and welcome to another Drupal Easy podcast. My name is Mike Anello, and you are tuned in to episode 229. In today's episode, I speak with Yuri Gerasimov. I hope I just pronounced Yuri's name correctly. Anyway, I'll be talking to him about Diffie, a website that he is one of the principals of that helps with, actually it doesn't help, it does visual regression testing for you. I'll also be speaking with one of the original Drupal Easy Podcast members, Mr. Ryan Price, and we're going to be talking about a few different things, including hashtag Drupal Cares and Drupal 9 launch parties, as well as an interesting Git Composer workflow method that I heard about from him, and it involves having one branch without dependencies committed while you have a another branch with dependencies committed. A pretty interesting uh, thought and you know potential workflow for folks to take a look at. And finally, I am happy to report that we have yet another episode of my favorite new segment, The Change Record, with Chris Weber. Well, let's get going. <laughs> I'm here with Yuri Gerasimov. Uh, Yuri is one of the principals, or maybe the only principal, you can answer that for me, behind the Diffie.website project. Uh, hey, Yuri, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Sure. Is, uh, so is Diffie.website, is that all you, or are there other folks involved? Oh, uh, there are other people involved. So right now we are a team of... Uh, three people. Uh, so there is a developer who is helping me beside of me doing some part of development and also a person helping me with marketing. All right, cool. Well, let's get right into this because this is something that you actually contacted me uh, months ago about this and I, I just didn't have time until lately to dig into it. And I sure am glad that I did because I've always kind of been interested in visual testing. I've read blog posts and seen presentations about how to get stuff set up on your local um, but I've never, I, I've never put the time into make any of it uh, to, you know, give it a go. Um, the the general idea behind it is that it's a tool that can take um, an, an image of your website and compare it with another image of your website, um, you know, on a different branch or after a commit or something like that. So it's a way to um, visually um, detect changes. Um, between environments, I guess is that is that as good a way as any to explain what it does? I think that is very accurate. And uh, in terms of different commits environments, there are really multiple workflows when it can be applied. Right. So I went ahead and I created a, a free account. There's a, a free a 14 day trial period uh, on Diffy.website. And so I went ahead and did this a few days ago, and I actually set up DrupalEasy.com on it. So I, I actually had a little theming task I had to do, and then I had some modules I was going to update. So I said, oh, this is a really good time to do it. So uh, the, the sign-up was, was really easy. The configuration uh, was pretty darn easy as well. I put in like my live URL, and then I put in... Um, the dev or test URL, my, you know, DrupalEasy.com is hosted on Pantheon. 
Um, and then I added a few pages that I wanted to check. So, and I, I added some of the important pages like the home page and some of our, you know, our paid training pages, pages and things like that. Um, and it was actually very easy to configure, which is always kind of the one thing, you know, something that I'm worried about that it, I'd have to install something or who knows what, but this was, this was just, you know, adding URLs and adding some paths and stuff. So that kudos for that, because that was, uh, that, that was very nice. And then after that, basically, I, I did my work on my local and I pushed it up to one of my Pantheon environments. And I came back to Diffy.website and I hit a button to basically generate a new set of images. And um, it took probably five minutes, I would say, for Diffy to do its thing. And uh, it comes back and it shows me side-by-side images of you know the, the same page in both environments. And it highlights the differences. And you even have like one of those little slider bars over the two images so you can see the differences by sliding the bar back and forth um, it was everything that i had seen like in presentations and blog posts when it came to visual testing and here it was um you know on a website that i had to do probably the bare minimum amount of configuration that i would i could possibly imagine i would need to do so let me so uh, enough about my experience because my experience was was very positive but let me ask you, uh, Yuri, so how does this work behind the scenes? I don't want to get too deep into it, but what kind of technology, what kind of tools, how does this, how does this all happen? Right, right. So um, we run all the screenshots uh, by using Puppeteer. It's basically a Chrome, headless Chrome browser. And uh, what we do, we also use Amazon Lambda for actually running those orders. So whenever you hit um, scanning the website, taking the screenshot, we create a number of jobs in the queue. And then Amazon Lambda takes care of spawning up the workers and they start taking screenshots from your pages. Um, we initially, when we started the project, we did have our own farm of servers, but Amazon Lambda just does the job much better than what we went um, so far. Um, on the other hand, it sometimes can overload your service. So there is one hint if you are scanning or taking screenshots of your dev or stage environments, uh, you better limit the performance of those workers. Otherwise, they, I mean, imagine like 500 users hitting your staging environment, sometimes it will not be able to cope with the load. Yeah, I saw something in the configuration about that to, to throttle that. Yes, yes. There is a performance tab on the project settings, and this is where you can uh, play with the numbers to find the balance between not overloading your server and also the speed of uh, the process. Yeah, let me ask you a question about that because this was something, um, again, I, I'm kind of new to this, but I've always been interested in it. Sure. Um, it seems like that this could compare a lot of pages between two environments. Is that is that really common? You know, as I was setting this up and as I was thinking about it, I was, I was thinking to myself, and granted, my website is not, you know, it's not a huge website, but it, it has, you know, on the order of thousands of pages. Um, but a lot of them are, you know, there's a lot of podcast episodes. There's a lot of articles. There's a lot mm -hmm. of quick. I didn't really see the need to have more than, I think I have three or four different pages being checked. Is it 
common for folks to check literally hundreds of pages? So let me give you a couple of examples that are actually pretty interesting. So yes, when people generally ask me about like, okay, how many pages shall I be testing? I usually explain like, okay, if it's just one website, yeah, just take the homepage, maybe pages from your main menu, just to make sure you don't uh, mess anything there. In terms of the content, just pick maybe a couple of articles of each content type, if we are talking about Drupal, and you should be good to go. So usually people end up maybe with 20, 30 pages. Uh, pretty rare that they go above 50. But this is just one website. And imagine another completely, well, not an extreme situation, but that is pretty common. Uh, you host websites on large multi-site, or uh, you can be using Pantheon upstreams, or you have Agear or Acquia Site Factory, something that deploys your change to multiple websites at the same time. And this is where you would like to test not only one website, but maybe 30 websites, because they have little customizations here and there, and each of the websites have 20, 30 pages multiply by the number of breakpoints, and this is where you will end up with like thousands of screenshots just for one run. Um, so we did cover this type of cases, and uh, we do have customers who are using this particular scenarios in their workflow. All right, that makes sense. Let me mention the pricing real quick, because I think the pricing is, is really reasonable. As I said, there's a 14-day free trial. Uh, after that, there's a pay-as-you-go which gives you a thousand screenshots for $20. Now is that, let me ask a question, is uh, do you count one screen one screenshot as the same screenshot in multiple environments or is like one screenshot in live and dev, does that count as two? Okay, so we have two different price models. The pay as you go is based on the number of actual images that you generate, right? So. If you have one page on your dev environment and you take screenshots with three breakpoints, it will count as three. Then you do the same thing on your production, that will be another three. And then when you compare them, it doesn't count. So in this way, you compare one page and three breakpoints in two environments, that's six screenshots. That's one model. Uh, the second model is subscription-based. and. Uh, it is based on different thing. It based on the number of pages that you are scanning. So coming back to the example of single website that has 20 pages that we scan. So this will be just 20 pages out of let's say 100. That's the basic plan that we have. And it doesn't matter what environments you take screenshots from. It doesn't matter how often you take screenshots. Of course, if you will overuse our system, we will let you know about that. You have no reason to take screenshots every five minutes, probably. Um, but idea is that in the basic plan that is 100 pages, you can easily test like three, four, maybe even five different websites. And uh, that costs $50 a month. And then you can go to agency plan that is thousands of pages. So it's pretty large amount and, uh, um, well, should be good for agencies in our calculations. And if you pay the year, if you pay uh, a year in advance or a year at a time, you get a discount off that $50 uh, as well. So it's 
you know, it seems like a really good deal to me for what you're getting. Yeah. Yeah. And I also wanted to mention is that we do have even enterprise when you go above thousand pages. So um, that is also possible if you have like really large websites that you need to test a lot of pages as well. So are folks using this, um, like I set it up man- to be manual. Like I didn't want it to automatically take screenshots, you know, on every code push or every deployment. I, I wanted to be able to like log in and hit a button and say, okay, do this now. Mm-hmm. Is, is that common or do most people set this up? So every time there's a push to a particular branch, boom, there's, you know, the, the process kicks off and we get some screenshots to compare. I would say probably half of our user base use manual uh, way the most. And it really depends on sophistication of their development process. Sure. Because uh, there are companies who are really into continuous integration and whenever they do deployment, it, it just runs automatically for them and then they receive. Um, there is another option of monitoring uh, worth mentioning. Idea is that you can set up monitoring of your production environment. And basically, Diffie will go there every day or week or whatever, how often you set it up, and will take screenshots from that environment and compare them with previous version. So there is a, it's not an automation, but there is another option of running this type of testing without manual involvement. So the homepage also talks about integration with the, you know, Pantheon and Afria Cloud and Platform and GitHub. Um, So what does that integration look like? There are multiple ways of doing integrations. Uh, If we are talking about hosting platforms, let's say Acquia or Pantheon, so they do have these things called post-deployment hooks. Um, And this is where you can trigger some jobs after you've done deployment. So what you can easily accomplish without having any continuous integration in place is that Every time you do deployment, let's say, to staging environment, you take screenshots from staging and production and compare them. Um, So ideally, when you do that, you can sync the database from your production to staging, deploy the code to staging from dev, and after some time, you will get notification to Slack with uh, the report. Uh, This is like first level of integration, let's, let's say. Um, there is a second one. For example, Pantheon has this workflow uh, that is based on their dev branches. Um, so whenever you push some code and create a branch or create a pull request, it can deploy that code to some separate environment. And this is where you can compare that environment with your master branch. Um, this is what can be done with um, platform stage as well. Uh, and this is where... Pantheon were actually very, very good. And this is where you have also other platforms like ProboCI, or there is a Tugboat. They also specialized on this type of workflows where you spin up different environments per your branch or per your pull request. Um, In terms of the GitHub integration or GitLab, idea is that uh, this is all about submitting the results back to whatever source. So we can... It's very easy to set up um, submitting results of the comparison to your Slack channel, but also it is possible to submit them to your pull request. Uh, For example, in GitLab, that's an API call. Um, You post a message. 
In GitHub, you can do it in multiple ways. So first way is exactly the same, just post a message to the pull request, but also GitHub has these things called checks. Um, initially, they like you probably have seen there are a lot of projects where they do these checks for code styles and linters and this type of thing, but you also can submit the results of the diff. And if there is some change, you can fail the check so people will see like, oh, this pull request is actually blocked. And then once they resolve it, it will get resolved and then they can merge. It will, of course, depend on how you set it up, but it's these integrations are all about how you submit the results back to development team. All right, that's super interesting. That seems like this can have some pretty um, meaningful integration. Sure. Let me ask you kind of more a, a general question about this, and this is something I've, I've I've wondered about since you know one of the first times I I was exposed to this type of visual testing. Is this something that you see? more um, driven from project managers or from developers? Like how, who, who, who drives this process as far as, you know, to, to review the visual testing in your experience at least? Oh, I have like completely different roles, uh, truly to say. So there are situations when developers doing that by themselves, for example, small team maintaining large number of websites, they just don't have anyone else. So it can be two, three people team and team lead will do the deployment, run the visual testing. If there are any bugs, submit them to other team members. Um, also, I've seen, um, for example, project managers do that too. In some cases, because the tool is very easy to use, they don't need to code or run any shell commands they can just trigger the diff whenever deployment has been done, and then they do the review. Um, also, if team has dedicated QA person, that can be a person responsible for reviewing diffs whenever there are some changes. Um, so because probably my background and marketing messaging that we have, we attract more developers, but uh, we do have plenty of customers like product owners, let's say. And this is where they they just do this testing on their own and save their own time after each deployment. Yeah, I was as I was playing with it and setting it up for my site, I was thinking about my clients and trying to figure out like, I think this would be really good for some of my clients, but I'm trying to figure out, is this something I should talk to the developers about or should I go right to the stakeholders about this? Um, you know, and I, I, it's not really a fair question or it's not really a question because it really depends on the client, obviously. Um, but it, it got me thinking um, that it's not, because it's so visual, it's not necessarily purely a developer tool. I guess that's what my point is. Absolutely, absolutely. And there is another very interesting case um, that, I would like to talk about. It's not about Drupal though, but still it's coming from WordPress. And the service that is pretty popular in that ecosystem is they do optimization of the websites. So, I mean, in Drupal, we just enable CSS aggregation and or advanced CSS aggregation and we are kind of done, but they, they bring it further. So they do like minification, like all the different stuff or like loading just CSS for the, the page like on the fold, etc. So they do have a lot of things. And what interesting I heard is that they're using visual testing not only to 
verify that they didn't do any damage after they did their optimization, but also to make their work safe because clients will not be able to tell them, oh, you broke this thing, even though they didn't break it. Uh, and uh, like it was probably broken before even they started optimization. But with the screenshots, they can show that like, look, this is how it looked before we even started. So it's definitely not our fault. So it's another way of actually make developers' life easier. So they will not be blamed to break something that was even broken before them. It's like a, it's like an insurance plan for developers. Oh yeah. All right, great. Uh, last question is: Are there any you know additional features or features that you have in mind that you guys are or that, well, that you folks are working on for this site? Is there like what's next? Right. So right now our focus was about stabilizing and providing features that help people to avoid false positives. And this is a pretty big topic in uh, visual regression testing because uh, like, you can have changes not related to changes in CSS. It can be content. It can be some dynamic nature of your website. I don't know, slider was on different slide, or maybe you have some ads. So we added a lot of features like excluding elements, removing elements, or we can even replace some content of your on your website with a lorem ipsum. Uh, text. So in this way, you will have exactly the same content all the time. Um, right now, we are also focusing on idea of being able to test your local websites. Uh, so idea behind it is that because we host all our workers in the cloud, we do receive requests from people who say like, well, we have our websites behind the firewall and uh, we are not able to expose them. Even we cannot whitelist anything outside. So we have made it possible to upload your images to Diffin. And this is what we are going to use for uh, the worker that you can download, you can configure, and it will take screenshots of the website that is on your local network and upload them for you. And then Diffy can do the comparison and do all other stuff that is already there. So this is the next pretty large feature that hopefully will enable more customers to use the tool. And this is what we are focusing right now. Oh, that's really cool. That is a, that's a, that's a cool little idea just to have the little, it's almost like a, well, as you said, it's a, it's a local worker that takes the images. So, all right, well, super. Thank you so much for, uh, well, first of all, thank you for being patient with me because it's been months since you reached out to me about this. So I, I appreciate that. And um, just good luck with this and, and let us know as things develop. And you know, maybe we can have you on in the future to talk about this again. Absolutely. We'll be really happy to. And thank you again for having me. It's a great opportunity. All right. Fantastic. So one last time, it's Diffy, D-I-F-F-Y, Diffy.website. And there's a free 14-day trial. It literally took me uh, less than an hour, I would probably say, 15 minutes to get some initial screenshots going. I had one issue with something that you just mentioned. I was trying to mask out one area of a page and I had my syntax wrong or something, but you popped in and, and helped me uh, pretty quickly there. So uh, it's a really cool tool. If you're if you're interested in visual testing, you've never had a chance to play with it. This is a really easy way to check it out and see if this is for you or possibly your clients. So thank you very much, Yuri. And uh, you know, stay safe, keep washing your hands, and uh, we'll see you soon, hopefully. 
Thank you very much. Take care. It's time once again to talk about mydropwizard.com. Coming up in November of 2021, Drupal 7 will be end of life. What will you do if you have a Drupal 7 site that you haven't updated to Drupal 8 or Drupal 9 yet? I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to contact mydropwizard.com and you're going to sign up for their Drupal 7 extended support plan. This will keep your Drupal 7 site secure well past the November 2021 date. Plans start at as low as $99. They will keep core and contributed modules up to date. They'll help you keep the site online. They'll answer your questions and they'll even do basic one-off maintenance tasks. So you definitely want to check them out at mydropwizard.com. All plans include 30-day money-back guarantee, 24-hour response time, and a site audit. So definitely check out our friends over at mydropwizard.com. Hey, Mr. Ryan Price, one of the originals of the Drupal Easy Podcast. How are you doing? Hey, excellent. I am uh, sitting sitting here in Portland looking out my back porch, and there is a beautiful Stellar J, which is like a somewhere between a blue jay and a cardinal dancing around on the trees. So is this when you work from home? So we're about just for, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, we're about what a month in to the quote unquote mandatory stay at home coronavirus stuff right now. Yeah. When you work from home, is this your view, your daily view or you, I know you have little kids, so are you just kind of shuffling from place to place? I, yeah, I am in a different room than I normally am right now. Cause it's funny when you say when I work from home, like I ever work anywhere else. <laughs> Right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, it's good to hear your voice. It's good. I'm glad that everything's going going okay with the family and everyone's staying healthy. Yeah. I mean, we're all, you know, staying, staying safe. Um, my wife has a job that is considered essential. So she actually goes to work four or five days a week right now. Um, but luckily they have had no um, incidents uh, the way the the kind of business they do, they actually keep all the customers out in the parking lot, sitting in their car, and they call them when you know it's like curbside service. That makes sense. I, th- I think a, that's going to be the new normal for certain businesses for uh, I would say the next year or so. I'm going to guess. Yeah, I would say so. So anyway, um, you know, we've been talking and figured, hey, let's get you on just to you know because it's fun to to talk to you and. Um, we don't really have one big overarching topic, but we have a few smaller topics that we're going to kind of run through and talk about and uh, maybe give our opinion on and, and some ideas. And so let's kick this off with hashtag Drupal cares. So I was going to, you know, basically interview someone involved, you know, maybe someone from the DA or something like that to talk about this. But to be honest, the Lullabot podcast and the Talking Drupal podcast have, ha- have done a great job lately. Um, well, they always do a great job, but they've had some really great guests as well talking about Drupal Cares. So rather than going that route, I just figured we'd kind of go around the horn with everything that's going on. Is that cool with you, Mr. Price? Absolutely. All right. So let me introduce this. as So the Drupal Cares Match Challenge is it's basically a, a giant fundraiser for the Drupal Association who is – 
going to take a big hit this year because of DrupalCon getting postponed or canceled or maybe transitioned to an online event. You know, whatever happens, um, I think the minimum financial impact to the DA is going to be somewhere around a half a million dollars. And that's, you know, that that's a lot for the Drupal Association. Well, it's if you think about it just in terms of like headcount, that that's like, you know, several employees of which they have several that they wouldn't be able to pay if, you know. And they've, they've already had to. Yeah, they've already they've already cut people a few years ago, but, you know, like. I'm, I'm not saying that that's where that money is going to go. Like, I don't have any inside information there, but just to think about it in terms of, of people that they have to pay to, you know, do the work, $500,000 is no small amount of money. And it, you know, they've already actually last month, they've already had to do an initial round of layoffs, which is, you know, awful, oh boy. Um, but that's just kind of the, the, the situation that we're in. So um, there is a Drupal. Uh, so Drupal cares is kind of the, the overarching, kind of uh, theme of this. Um, so it's a, it's a push from the Drupal Association for folks to either renew their membership, or if they're already a member, maybe become a slightly higher member, or just make a cash donation. Um, or if you are a supporting partner, maybe up the level of supporting partner that you are. So it's just, it, it's an effort by the DA to kind of bridge that, you know, at least half a million dollar gap. Um, and around that, a lot of interesting things have been happening. Probably um, the, the biggest has been Dries and, and Vanessa have announced a $100,000 matching donation. So for every hundred, well, not for every, but for, you know, if the community um, donates $100,000, uh, Dries and Vanessa will match that. Um, so that's a really easy way for folks to donate whatever, whether it's a dollar or a euro or a hundred dollars or whatever, um, to basically multiply that by two right out of the box. Um, and you know, if, if that you know meets the you know if that gets up to a hundred thousand dollars, then you know that's forty percent of uh, of the shortfall. If there's you know if it's a half a million dollar shortfall, so that's that's. Um, not to overuse this this pun, but it's that's more than a, a drop. Get it? A drop. Oh, okay. see what I did there? Yeah. All right. I've been saving that one for like a week. I'd have to I'd have to fact check this, but I think an individual membership to the association is only like twenty five dollars or something like that. Yeah, it's something. I actually just upped mine my individual membership. Um, I think it's thirty five might be the lowest. Okay, but it's 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 in that order, right? It's less than fifty bucks. And if you think about what your family spends one night going out to dinner, or if you think about what you spent on one Kickstarter project that you're going to be getting like three years from now, that's the kind of you know expenditure we're talking about. But if a thousand people do that, you know now we've got twenty five thousand dollars. So that's you know you could be one of those thousand people. I don't even look at it that way, and I look at it and granted, I'm. Um... You know, I'm a contractor. You know, I'm I'm a consultant. I um, so we charge our clients an hourly rate. Um, I've been thinking about it in terms of hourly rate. If you know whatever your hour, you know whatever your hourly rate is, is it worth one hour a month of your rate? Um, I think that's fair. I think that's that's way more than fair. You know, Drupal is enabling. You know, I'll speak very personally about this. Drupal enables me to support my family largely. You know, and my wife works as well. But um, you know, 
know, a significant portion of our income comes from Drupal and it would not exist if it wasn't for the Drupal project. So for me to say, no, you know, giving one hour a month back to the DA isn't worth it seems kind of selfish of me. Um, and I granted, I, you know, not everybody's in the same financial position and, and stuff like that. But speaking personally, I, I think at least one hour a month um, is what I should be giving back to the DA. Um, and to be perfectly honest, it's a little bit more than $35 a year. Mm -hmm. So um, that's kind of what my goal is personally, is to be able to do that, at least that. Um, and rather than giving it, you know, you know all at once, um, I've been, you know, in my head, I'm, I want to donate a little bit every few weeks because I want to try to um, encourage other people to donate similarly. So if I do it just once and I don't have as many opportunities on social media, if I can do it multiple times, then I have multiple opportunities on social media. Um, and I'll give you an example, Ryan, and this would, this is something I think you could get behind. Um, last week, maybe, or the week, I even forget when it was, all the days are kind of running together now. Um, I actually, uh, you know, we're, we just moved to a, to a new home. Um, and so I, you know, as I was packing and unpacking my clothes, I basically separated out all my Drupal Camp and DrupalCon t-shirts because there's a lot. And I was just curious, how many do I have? And it turned out I had 41 unique, 41 different DrupalCon and DrupalCamp t-shirts. Um, so, you know, that week I decided, well, I'm going to give $2 per t-shirt. And, you know, I put it out on Twitter and, you know, did a hashtag Drupal, hashtag Drupal t-shirt challenge and made a donation for 82 bucks that week. But I think it's kind of fun stuff like that, that, that we can, you know, we can all do to, you know, give back to the DA and, and hopefully avoid any more layoffs, which would be awful, not only just for, you know, for people getting laid off for the individuals, but also, you know, because it, it's going to start affecting what the DA you know, you know, does for the community. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't had the chance to, to count my shirts yet, but I guarantee you it's more than 30. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's some other folks in the community doing some really interesting things that I want to highlight real quick. Cause I think that's, it, it's really great. Um, Evolving web and Suzanne Dergasheva, she put something on, uh, on LinkedIn um, but they are going to donate half of the revenue from their Drupal training program to the DA. Oh, wow. Which is extremely generous. In case anybody forgets, revenue is what the sticker price is, not what, what you're taking home. So they're basically, I don't know what their costs are for some of these things. I mean, but that's significant. <laughs> Yeah, so if you are interested in um, any type of Drupal training, I would definitely go over to Evolving Web. I think it's evolvingweb.ca or .com. Let me look that up right now. Well, and, and actually, I have helped um, Suzanne run some of her classes at DrupalCon before. Um, she's absolutely, you know, one of the one of the top people. You count on one hand um, the people doing Drupal training and then the people doing it really well, and she's definitely up there, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. So they have classes coming up um, in the next month on Drupal 8 site building architecture, a five-day Drupal 8 training, uh, theming, module development, web accessibility, and web fundamentals all in the next month. So um, great, huge thanks to uh, Evolving Web uh, for doing that. I also want to you know, um, give a shout out to Acquia. 
Um, they are basically buying a bunch of advertising on Drupal.org industry pages and Drupal.org feature pages, and they're basically going to be promoting their some of their partners on on that. So that's kind of a win-win. The DA is going to get um, you know a, a nice chunk of change for that, and some of the Acquia partners are going to get some nice recognition uh, for that. So that's you know that's another great thing, and then. Uh, Two other things, um, Gabor, who has been around the community for a really long time, he is going to donate up to 900 euros for every, uh, and he's going to do it by for every Drupal 9 compatible release made uh, until the end of April, he's going to donate 9 euros. So if there are, uh, you know, if module maintainers can... Um, tag a Drupal 9 release for their module in the next two weeks, that's worth nine euros. So that's another fun one. And that one, you know, if, if you're a module maintainer and, and, and you want to, you know, donate, I'm um, using air quotes here, but it is, it's donating your time and that's going to directly turn into um, uh, euros for the, for the DA. And then probably the easiest one, and this one I absolutely love, and I'm kind of jealous that, that I didn't think of it first, is uh, Jeff Geerling, who has been around the community for a long time. Uh, he will um, uh, donate $1 per like um, for a video that he has posted up on YouTube. Um, and I don't even know what the topic of the video is. Uh, I think it might just be a, I think it's just a, yeah, it's a two minute video about pound, hashtag Drupal cares. So all you have to do is go to YouTube and like that video and it's worth a dollar. And as of, um, let me re refresh the page right now, it is at 428 uh, thumbs up, 428 likes. So oh, that's interesting. That's, that's gone up a few even since I loaded this page at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah. So if every one of our listeners um, clicks the link and uh, you know hits the like, then this is going to be, you know, I'm sorry, Jeff, but you're going to be donating $1,000 in a relatively short time. So mm -hmm. for that. <laughs> he's got some great videos on youtube he's been doing a live drupal 7 to drupal 8 migration of his uh, of his own site and just recording the whole thing and putting it up on youtube oh that's awesome really good stuff i think that's i think that i did i go through, i think I've, I've gone i think i've covered all of the things that i had written down is there anything that you're aware of ryan i think you got it i mean i i've definitely seen some some things on twitter uh but I think many of them you've already mentioned. So I think there are some good some good hashtags out there too that you can you can check out. So um, if we think of anything else, we'll put them in the show notes afterwards. Yeah, I like the the idea that you know not everybody is in the financial position to give, but that's completely okay because there's other things that we can all do, you know, that will result in you know a financial contribution to the Drupal Association. Well, and, the, and then, yeah, then there's the, like you say, the th certain things that are like win-win or win-win-win type of situations. Like if you port a module to Drupal 9, a lot of people get a benefit out of that in addition to Gabor gives nine euros to the association. So I, I should mention that the um, uh, the Dries and Vanessa matching uh, up to $100,000, that's about halfway through. So there's been, as of, let me refresh this page as well. As of this moment, there is a little over fifty-two thousand. Actually, it's more than it's more than a hundred. It's more than halfway because there's fifty-two thousand dollars and fifteen thousand euros 
So there'll be some math involved there and some currency conversion, but maybe $70,000, so maybe 70% of the way-ish there. Um, so that'd be great if the community could top that out, um, you know, finish that up this week. And, you know, maybe in the next uh, week or two, there'll be additional challenges and additional ideas that, that bubble up in the community as ways uh, to help the DA. And um, I think one, one thing that could really show, um, you know, the open source uh, community, how strong Drupal is, is, you know, if, if we could somehow come out of this, um, you know, scary time uh, stronger than going in, which would be amazing. Um, and I think it's, I think it's more than doable. Awesome. Best of, best of luck to all those efforts and, uh, everybody stay safe. Okay. Let's move on to the next topic. And, you know, Drupal nine has, you know, it's on, it's on track. It's on track to be launched in, I believe it's June. If, if I am, uh, uh, if I'm correct, I don't have the date right in front of me, but I believe it's sometime in mid June. So it's time to start, you know, every time there's a major Drupal release, there are various launch parties around the world. And, I think this year launch celebrations are going to be largely online, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to happen. So I just want to kind of um, give uh, promote this a little bit that if you are a uh, an event organizer or a community organizer of some of some form in the Drupal community, um, the Drupal Association is interested in learning about any Drupal nine launch celebrations that you might be holding, so that they can. Um, you know, help coordinate and promote all of these launch celebrations. So I will have a link in the show notes to a Google form that's organized by Mr. Paul Johnson, who, if you're not familiar with Paul, um, he is the one that, for the most part, manages the at Drupal social media feeds. Um, so uh, he's got a Google form out there that you can fill out and um, kind of mention what your uh, community's Drupal 9 global launch celebration uh, is, is looking like. It looks like they're planning some sort of a tweet storm. I assume probably that, you know, when, when the, the release happens. Yeah, I think for Drupal 8, they actually provided some like marketing materials as well, some logos and stuff that people can tweet. I remember we had like a slideshow, like in, in when I was living in Orlando. So this had to have been, what, four or five years ago. No, uh, twenty was it twenty thirteen even? Is it that long ago? Uh, well, Drupal eight was released in twenty sixteen, the end of twenty sixteen, if I remember correctly. I, I know. Well, I know I was in Orlando because um, we had uh, we had the party at Urban Rethink. <laughs> I don't think that was the Drupal seven release party because that Drupal seven was much older than that. So, or was I? I don't know. I, I'm starting to feel old right now. <laughs> Yeah, those years start adding up real fast. <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to do that. All right, so let's move on to... Um, oh, no. Uh, I, sorry. I'm, oh, all right. I feel, like, I feel like either we need to edit or I just need to edit the world. Drupal 7 release party was at Urban Rethink, and the Drupal 8 release party was at a Linux conference, but I was still living in Orlando then. Oh, that's right. It was at like a, it was like a CMS summit? Something, something like that? Yeah, there was, there was like a Linux... And we had summit. a trivia night. We did a yep, trivia night. Trivia night. Maybe your memory is the internet. Maybe you've been Googling. <laughs> no. No? Okay. Hey, let's talk about Composer for a couple of minutes. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan. Big fan. Takes a long time to download stuff. Yeah, that's going to change, though. That's going to change. 
Um, I'm a big fan of Composer too. I've been teaching Composer for a while. I am um, almost done with a full day. Um, well, I do have a full day curriculum for a Composer class, um, but there's one one more big addition I want to make to it. And then I think I'm going to start offering it online. I guess this is an announcement for that, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't planning on making that announcement, but um, be on the lookout for a Composer Basics uh, specifically for Drupal developers. Um, Maybe as soon as this interview is over, you'll hear an ad. <laughs> Perhaps. Well, I don't think so, because I, I, I know I've got one more chunk that I've, I've got kind of spec'd out, but I got to write it up and screencast it and all that stuff. Um, but putting that to the side for a second, uh, Composer 2.x is, is coming. It's actually in beta. So I put a link in the show notes about it. Um, there's an article on php.watch about it. And um, as you mentioned, Ryan, one of the features of Composer uh, 2 is going to be much faster downloads. Um, so that's something that I don't know. I'm not super excited about that because, and maybe I don't know if you feel the same way or, or, or different about this, but I know for the most part, I'm using Composer to install Drupal Core and you know Drupal modules. Um, the first time I do that for a particular version of, of, of Core or modules, yes, it does have to download it. But the next 30 times I do it, as long as it's the same version, it's, it's just, it's loading from cache. So it's not downloading it. So I'm not seeing that slowness. So, so the, if you read a little deeper into this article, there's another thing that happens too, which is if you have to set up additional repositories. So for a lot of people that do a Drupal project, you're going to have one additional repository and that's the Drupal repository, right? It's going to go right up at the top of your file before you can even install anything from Drupal or uh, you know, any modules, you'll have to have the Drupal repository added. And, um, but place I was working recently, we had our own private repository as well. Um, and it's in some other things that we had to download. So anytime that you start up composer, you know, either install or require an update, it has to go talk to all those repositories and download all the new metadata. And I believe that part of these improvements is also being able to uh, be less chatty with all of the metadata. There's like a new format that uh, promises to be faster to parse and faster to download. So I, I, if only for that, that I won't type the command and then sit there for 20 or 30 seconds while it just has to think, oh, everything I have is already in the cache. That's, 20 or 30 seconds is enough to lose my attention. Right, right. Yeah, no, there's there's a few things in Composer 2 that kind of stood out to me from this article that will help with performance. And number one is the, um, the like the parallel downloads. Once things start getting downloaded, they'll go in parallel. And that was, um, there's a fairly you know, well-known plugin for Composer 1 right now called, uh, and I, I don't know if I'm going to say it right, but it's Prestissimo, I believe, or Prestissimo. That sounds right. Yeah, that's a fairly well-used Composer plugin that kind of enables parallel downloads. So, so that's going to be kind of baked into, I don't know if it's that plugin, but similar um, uh, support is going to be baked into Composer 2. Well, and um, for, the, for the really nerdy people, it's going to be using uh, HTTP2. So there's a lot of efficiencies you get when you switch to HTTP2 because, it, you know, you want to make those connections secure. You want to know that you're actually connecting to packages stored at drupal.org. Um, 
So you don't want to do it insecurely. And yeah, HTTP2 it used to be called speedy. So do the math on that one. The other, the other thing in Composer 2, which I thought was really interesting, which I think will um, help projects like Drupal is the idea of canonical repositories. So you can mark a repository as, I, th I believe this is the way it works. You can mark a repository as canonical. Like for, for a particular package. Yes. So, so if, if you have a customized version of something, like uh, one thing I can think of is like a, like say it's a JavaScript plugin and it's not being maintained anymore and then you forked it and you made your own, it doesn't have to go check to see which one is the most up to date. You can just say this, this one, only ever use this one, right? That, well, that's the, that's the, I think that's more filtering, filtered repositories, which is a new, uh, another new feature. That's where you basically say, use this repository if the vendor is this. Well, I guess what I mean is like, uh, so, so I'm just going to, you know, pick on something that I see on a lot of the um, uh, sites is like, I'm not going to remember what it is right now, but there's like a meet and like an image cropping plugin, I think that's required by a very commonly used media module. Um, can't remember what it's called right now, but anyway, just go with me on this one. And let's say that for some reason you need to make a customization to that image cropping. Uh, it's like a JavaScript plugin, right? Let's say you need to make some customization to that. You can patch it. You know, and then you can use go through the whole rigmarole of the patching land, but you can't change the name of the package, right? Because that package is being included by other packages. So you have to actually update the package. But you can tell Composer, this package is not located here. It's located somewhere else. But even so, when you do something like that, um, you know, if it's located in both places, it's going to check both places still. And with this canonical command, you can now say, please only check for this package in this location. Don't check it anywhere else. Right. Okay. Yeah. You explained that much better than I, than I was uh, in, in the process of. So I do want to mention that um, the uh, Drupal Composer Initiative folks um, have been working on adding support for Composer 2 to Drupal Core because obviously there's, you know, Composer templates inside of Drupal core now, as well as just, you know, overall Composer support for all of the Drupal dependencies. Um, and so there is a version of, well, there's actually a version of Drupal core, you know, that um, works with Drupal core, uh, that works with Composer 2. Um, so I'll put a link uh, to a tweet from Greg Anderson about that. So if you're interested in testing things out, um, you can go ahead and uh, clone that project and, and test it there. Um, he does mention he hasn't done any performance uh, benchmarking with it yet, but he does, uh, he's aware of someone else, uh, Mike Bainton. Hopefully I'm pronouncing Mike's uh, last name right. Um, he measured some memory consumption uh, and there wasn't uh, much of a difference. Um, I don't know if that's going to stay uh, that way through the release of Composer 2, but that's where it looks like it stands right now. Um, so it looks like some, some new features and some wins um, for everybody as far as performance and, and, and some new features. So if you're really into Composer like I am, um, you might want to give Composer 2 a spin and just learn a little bit more about it. And um, that way, when it's when it's released, you uh, you know will be ready to go. So 
I did want to, uh, I want to pick your brain about something, Ryan, and I mentioned this to you earlier because you, I think we were on Slack somewhere and I saw you mention this. Yep. Um, and I found it really interesting and I've never done it and I just want to hear about it a little bit more. And this is the idea of um, a Drupal project where maybe like your develop branch, um, you set up so that composer dependencies are not committed. That's true. Um, but then you've got some type of, you have a release branch where you do commit the dependencies. So right. you're kind of getting the best, of, I don't know if it's the best of both worlds, but you're getting, you're, you're developing the way you should be developing. Let's put it that way, you know, without dependencies committed. But then when you're ready to create that artifact and push to, you know, a, a dev, a stage or a production, you commit the dependency. So how does that work? Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, so, so very, very good summary. I want to, I want to tell you the, one of the problems that I want to solve by trying to teach you this way. Right. So any, any place where you're working and you've got at least two people doing the development, you can, this also works for one person because at some point you may have to go back and look at the history of something that you've worked on. But let's just assume for right now, there's at least two people working on your project and you're going to engage in the code review process, right? So I'm working on, you know, a functionality and I need to do, let's just say it's a form alter, you know, here I go along and I'm doing my form alter and then I get to a certain point and I realize, oops, this module that I rely on for some, you know, functionality here has an update or maybe it's even a security update. Forget, okay, forget I said security update. Module has some sort of an update and I want to do it now because I'm touching something that, that also touches this module. So I want to make sure this module is the most up to date when I do this functionality. What do you do in that situation? If you update the module and then you're going to package everything up into a pull request, you know, you put it into your, to, to your working branch and somebody comes along and they do a diff, they're not just going to get the diff of that one file that has the, the form alter in it. They're going to get the diff of that one file plus, and let's say in the case of the old views module, I think there were over 150 files in the views module, right? So they're going to get this giant list back that says, well, all these files have changed. And if you count up the number of lines, let's just, you know, make a, a assumption. It's like, you know, over 400 lines of things have changed, but all you really did was change like two or three lines in one file. So it's just like a lot of cognitive overhead that really can, you know, slow somebody down. It can make it hard to see where the changes have happened. Let's say that you go along and you had to, you changed the file, but you had to change it five times. So at the end of this, this, you know, string of commits, really only three lines have changed, but you changed it a little bit up here, a little bit down here. Then you updated the module. Then you had to, you know, make your, your change to your logic one more time before you pushed everything together. It's really hard to follow that chain of events. Um, it's not saying that it's impossible, but it's, it's unnecessarily complex, right? Well, and the other side of it, I mean, you were talking about, you know, waiting 20 seconds for Composer to do something. I mean, if it, it, the speed of, you know, pulling in that commit and applying that commit to it, you know, when, when you do a pull or even a push, it's going to be a lot faster if you've got three lines changed, a three line diff or a 500 line diff. Yeah, I mean, and for me, like, if, if it only benefits one thing, it is that... 
only only the things that you are customizing, right? And and like if we're talking about Drupal eight, it's funny you have to even mention that, but like I've actually been working in Drupal seven land for the last year and a half. Um, but uh, if you're talking about Drupal eight, you know the things that change when you make a change are should be config files, custom modules, and your theme. You don't want core to change. You don't want your modules to change. You don't want you know your dependencies to change when you make a change. Those things only really matter when you go to deploy, and that's that's the the point here is that on your developer machine, you have the composer lock file. So I know that the stuff that you have on your machine, the stuff that I have on my machine are the same. There, there are systems out there where, um, you know, the, the, the compilation of all the composer dependencies is not stored in Git. So you use the word artifact, right? This is a word you see a lot in the, um, the DevOps world and Artifact can be a, a Git branch, but an artifact can also just be a zip file. So um, there are, uh, you know, deployment systems out there in the world, not very many of them in the Drupal world, but where what you do is you take your, your master branch, you put it onto some sort of a continuous integration server. It installs all the dependencies using some script, and then it takes that code um, also maybe it, in, you know, goes ahead and like injects your API keys and that kind of stuff. And it puts it into a zip file, right? And that zip file is actually what you deploy. Um, pretty common in most of the Drupal vendors that I know is Git based deploy. So like Acquia, Pantheon definitely do this Git based deploy and not zip file based deploy. But, um, also very common in the wide world is zip. Usually it's a targz file, not a zip file, but you get my point. So artifacts, artifacts take many forms, many forms. So you're making a really good argument. You know, the, the beginning of this discussion, you're making a really good argument for not committing dependencies to your repository. Right. And so, um, probably there are other reasons to want to want to have those, you know, dependencies calculated as late as possible, but, um, the human overhead is, is one of my biggest ones. Uh, so, so then, okay, what, well, how do I do this if I'm using, you know, Drupal and composer, right? The first thing you do is probably you may have Drupal core checked into your repository. You know, you may have your modules checked into your repository, start yourself a branch and just delete Drupal core, delete those, um, the contrib modules, things that you might want to save are like your HT access file, your robots text file. That kind of stuff. If you have done any customizations to any of your modules, you should be looking at the excellent Composer Patches plugin and um, documenting all of those things as patches. Because from now on, you will go to you know modules slash contrib, and it will be an empty folder until you do a Composer install. Until you well, right? But if you let's say just say like if you did a fresh Git download, you know what I mean? You should see, or even some. <laughs> Some text editors that you use, th if things are ignored, you know they'll they'll show those files in like a different color or something like that. Um, so so you should you should be noticing that nothing in your contrib folder is checked in. Um, I think sometimes there's a README file in there, right? Right. Yep. 
So what you're doing is you're saying, I want the system that I'm, I'm running right now to handle putting together the Drupal site. And Composer is the tool that we'll use to do that. Um, at, at this point, you may also think about adding some sort of a shell script to this. And there's a really cool thing inside Composer that's that's called, I think it's just called scripts. It's just one of the keys that you can do. Like there's repositories, there's dependencies, there's dev dependencies, and then there's something called scripts. And you can write shell commands inside that little scripts area, or you can point to a file that contains shell commands. Yeah, it's like Drupal's hook system. There are some composer hooks like, you know, post install. So after a, a composer install command has run, um, if you have a script in the post and post install hook, then you know Composer will automatically run your script. Right. So there's yeah, there's some that happen automatically, and there's other ones that you can manually invoke as well. Um, and one reason I bring this up is like a lot of people that I know they use some sort of a a theme that requires them to do some sort of like a SAS compile step, right? So uh, what I did when I was working on a project recently, I actually had a script that was called like, let's just, you know, make up a name because I actually forget what it was called right now, but it's called like build theme, right? So in addition to running install, where when I run, you know, I download my code base, I run composer install, it goes and gets Drupal core, it goes and gets all my contrib modules, all of my, you know, my vendor, um, you know, dependencies and stuff like that. But now I get to the situation, you know, the next, the next like logical step of this is like, there are other things in my world that are sort of like, they are part of the artifact, but they're not part of development. And those things are like, if you have uh, JavaScript files that need to be babelified or minified, um, or if you have CSS files that are SAS files that need to be, you know, compiled down to regular CSS, um, you can use those composer scripts to say, you know, whenever I run composer install or whenever I just run this manual command, which is build theme, I want to go over to my theme folder and I want to do my, my SAS compilation step. So now not only are you not storing your modules, your dependencies, your Drupal core, your vendor folder, you're also not storing your your .css files and your .min.js files in your repository. Um, it's a, it's another one of those like things that are noisy and like if you have to make a one line change to CSS, like oops, I need to move that thing over one pixel, then it looks like you're changing several files instead of really just changing one file. So then, okay, so let's so so let's say you you do all this and you have your let's call this the develop branch. That's, that's, yeah, that's all on your right. Usually, you know, a lot of places it's called master, maybe it's called develop, something like that. Right. Okay. So that's, that's, let's just call that like the, the, the light branch or the, you know, the, the developer branch. That's where there are no dependencies committed and you're not, you know, well, dependencies, you know, just, you know, in addition to core and, and modules, but, you know, like you said, maybe CSS files and minified JS files. So how do we, um, so let's say we now want to, we're at a point where we want to push this to, uh, you know, production or something like that. 
So we, you know, and, and obviously on this branch, we're going to have a git ignore file that ignores all of those, the proper directories, the core directory or the, and the, the contrib modules and all that stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's a step that I left out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I figured like, we'd get to it at some point. So there you go. You have to obviously configure your docket ignore to not, you know, want to commit all that stuff. So now we go over to, um, and let's just call this like a, you know, a product, we'll keep this simple, a production branch mm-hmm. where we do want all of that stuff committed. So in that branch, there's obviously going to have to be a different dot get ignore file that allows all of those you know, dependencies to be committed. Um, but what does that process look like? So you... Well, so first of all, if you don't, if you don't know already, um, Composer install has a flag available. It's called dash dash no dash dev. Um, and no dev means... All right, well, hold on. But wait, wait, wait. So let's take a step back first. Okay. Let's say you're on the develop branch and you're done. You're happy. You're like, this is good. This is ready to go to production. Well, I, I, I think I think it it can be part of part of your testing will depend on this no dev right because there are just to distinguish there are there are some dependencies um, on a lot of people's sites there's like Drush or even like the Devel module or something like that um, that you don't want to be enabled when you go to production so I just want to make sure that people understand there's a distinction between the dependencies that you can run in dev mode and the dependencies that you can run in no dev mode. Right. And, and, and that's, that can be important. Like if you want to, you know, put this into like a test environment, you know, at, at some point you're going to have this compiled with no dev, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry. So, so yeah, I want to take all this stuff and I want to put it somewhere. And we're saying in this case, we're going to put it in Git. So, the, the you can do this manually although i i claim that once you do something 10 times manually you should try to figure out how to write a script for it <laughs> all right but let's not let's let's keep this simple for now like what are the, let's talk about i'm really curious about the steps yeah the steps the steps are change change the branch that you're pointing to right now to some other branch so get check out you know, production or something like Get that. Get check out production, right? And and all the only thing you really want to be changing at that point is uh, what, the, what the pointer is. So I guess in this case, we'd also have to then say Git merge develop, right? So I have to take the stuff from develop and put it onto production. What I normally literally do when I'm going to start a new production branch is I, I, it's a brand new branch. It's this is called version 93 or something like that. Okay. It's it's a totally clean, brand new, pristine branch. And then I tell my tool later when I want to deploy something, please deploy version 93. All right. So this is where, when you mention this on Slack, this is where I, I, I get a little bit fuzzy. Because if you do that, then on your new pristine branch, your git ignore file is still ignoring everything. So what's your process for modifying the dot get ignore file so that you can then commit all your dependencies? Are you doing that with a script or we have? Yeah. So we have a little, um, a folder in the repository and there's lots of different ways you could do this, but it'll, it'll store a, you know, prod dot get ignore file. And whenever I switch over to that new branch, I delete get ignore 
and I rename prod.gitignore to gitignore. Okay. So I have a separate branch. And in some cases, um, you know, like if you're deploying to Acquia, maybe you call it Acquia.gitignore instead of calling it prod.gitignore. But whatever it happens to be, there will be a fi file that you store somewhere outside of your Drupal root that holds those preferences for things that you want to do on production. And, and if people have ever used like the config split module, they're already used to doing stuff like this. Um, where you've got configuration files that that work on your production instance, but not on your development instance. All right, so let me let me just walk through this because I'm 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 simple-minded sometimes. So I'm on develop. Yep. I'm happy with everything, um, and I want to release something. So I'll go I'll go along with what you what you were saying. So at that point, I do git branch version one dot four. Sure. So I'm creating a new branch. Um, that is going to be deployed. I'm calling a version, you know, one four or whatever. So that happens. So um, I create the new branch and then I check out that branch. So now I'm on that new branch, and as of this second, it looks exactly the same as the develop branch. Mm -hmm. So at that point, it sounds like I can do a composer install to get all of the dependencies where they need to be. But then as soon as I do that composer install, I need to you know, run my script that basically copies the production dot get ignore to just dot get ignore. Right. And then at that point, I'll, I'd have to make another, I'd have to, not another, but then I'd have to make a commit on my version 1.4 branch, committing that dot get ignore. And then at that point, I'm, I think I'm basically done. At that point, I can push. Yeah, the way that, the way that Git works is as soon as you put get ignore into the stage, Right, you you just add it. You don't have to commit it. When you put git ignore into the stage, then those rules apply. Right. So you you know, and if you're doing this all manually, you'd have to change the name of git ignore and put it on the stage, and then you're allowed to check in all your other stuff. Right. Oh, okay. All right. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So then there's not there's not there's just one commit. There's one commit that includes all of your dependencies as well as your production git ignore. Right. And so when I'm scripting this, what I literally do is I change, I have, I have two folders. One folder is called deploy. One folder is just my regular web folder. I go to the deploy folder. I check out whatever branch that I want. I delete every single file in that branch. I copy all of the files from uh, my regular folder into my deploy folder. I make sure that the composer install is in the right state. I make sure that the git ignore is in the right state and I git add everything and I check in everything because, um, you know, you don't want any like spare files lying around that, you know, um, if, if files have been deleted or files have changed names or something weird like that, you don't want to miss miss anything. All right. I think you lost me a little bit on copying all the files. Yeah. Well, um, it, I, I think some of it might just be superstition on my part. But uh, <laughs> that's that's where we are now. We're down to superstition. It's it's like it worked for me this one time, and I held my leg in the air. So I just always hold my leg in the air when I'm doing this piece. Now, what can I say? So um, you do you do this after checking out the production that your new ch production branch. So so here's what I do. I have two copies. I have two copies of the Git repo on my system, right? One of them is checked out to 
the production branch. One of them is checked out to the develop branch. Right. The production branch, as we said right now, is called version 1.4. And I, I just use the regular delete command, not git delete. Regular delete command, delete everything in that folder. Then I copy or rsync or something all the files from my develop branch into my production branch. And then I make sure that composer install no dev has been run, that my you know compile CSS steps have been done, that my minify JS steps have been done with the production configurations. And I make sure that my git ignore file is the production git ignore file. And then I do git add dot. So everything here and git commit, you know, commit version 93, commit version 1.4. And that's that's the version that I'm going to treat as the artifact for this go around. There are definitely many ways to do this. There's lots of steps you could do to get to that same state. That seems, you know, so what you're saying, and it, that extra step seems like overkill to me, but I, I haven't, you know, use this workflow yet. It's it's because Git Git history can be messy sometimes, and this way kind of avoids some of the like possible conflicts and and such that can happen. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. So, I mean, this is this is a really interesting. Um, you got me over my mental hurdle of this, and and that was the juggling of the dot Git ignore file. Mm-hmm. But it makes complete sense to have, like you said, have a production dot Git ignore sitting in a deploy folder, you know, as part of your project. And then as part of your creation of that deployment branch, you know, basically just copy that in, you know, whether you do it manually, whether you do it via script, um, copy that into your, as your, as your docket ignore file and, you know, commit everything and, and you're off to the races. So that, that gets me past that hurdle. And that's really interesting. I might play around with that a bit. Um, Cause I, you know, I, I host on, um, you know, I have a lot of clients that host on, on Acquia and Pantheon. Um, and at this point, we're just basically committing all the dependencies. But I've always, you know, I like the freedom. And I have a, I have a few clients that host on platform. And I love, you know, being able to, you know, have repositories for clients that host on platform that don't need dependencies committed. It's, it's almost, a, it's a very liberating feeling almost. So to be able to get that feeling for um, uh, projects that host virtually anywhere, um, that's what I was really intrigued about when you started talking about this. And and there's there's some other benefits too that like, I, I don't think I've seen this a lot in my recent years, but like when I was a, a young Drupal developer and like my first time ever using version control, we used to keep things like Photoshop files in our in our code repository you know, outside the web route. Um, but there would be like a couple of megabytes of, of Photoshop files sitting in some folder somewhere. Sure, yeah. Those don't need to go to your production instance, right? Those aren't part of the deployable artifact. So you could actually leave those out of this step. There's 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 other kinds of like, you know, trade-offs and efficiencies that you can make when you're thinking about the deployment branch. So there is, there is one sort of like principle that I want to make sure I talk about. When we talk about this, if you're, um, you know, if you're starting to go down this road of having a production artifact, there's one thing I want to make sure I say: the production artifact is 
write only. So you will never take something from the production branch and push it into the develop branch. Yeah, agreed. 110%. If you're if you're if you're using git as as your artifact repository, you will never take code from your production artifact and put it into your development artifact. You should always always change it on your development branch. And even if you're if you're you know, get history on your development branch advances to the point where you can't do a straight merge. You can generate a patch. There's really easy to generate. It's there. I think the pan is literally called format patch in Git world. You can do Git format patch and it gives you out a file or it'll give you out a number of files, depending on how many commits you were talking about. And you can use those patches to patch your production repository but you do not want to ever take something out of your production branch and put it into your develop branch. It defeats the purpose of doing an artifact. It's, it's now no longer an artifact. It's now this like weird simulacrum of your development repository. What was that word you just used? A simu- simulacrum is like a, it's like a pod person, right? It's like, it's like a, a weird, you know, like bizarro copy of yourself. If we were still naming episodes after fun things said during the podcast, then we would be done and we'd have a name, but we're not doing that anymore. But simulac, say it, say it again. Simulacrum. Simulacrum. Uh-huh. What science fiction novel did you pull that out of? Um, I want to say it's actually probably going to be like from Greek mythology. Oh, really? All right. I was going to, like, that sounds like a very Philip K. Dick type of uh, <laughs> uh, word. All right. Well, that's that's where we end right there. I mean, we cannot top simulacrum. Uh, so, so very, if I just finish one teeny, teeny, weeny little thought. Okay. You have to come up with a word better than simulacrum, but go Well, ahead. if you haven't yet checked out that there's a tool that's made by Acquia that's called BLT, which stands for Build, Load, and Test. If you're, if you're looking to automate this sort of stuff in your Drupal world, you may want to check out BLT. There are definitely other tools that do it, but BLT is built on top of a PHP framework called Robo, R-O-B-O. And Robo is a way of writing shell scripts in PHP instead of with Bash or something like that. Um, but there is a whole community out there of, of people that do PHP projects that want to do these sort of like automated build and test and other stuff. Um, and we didn't really talk about tests, but needless to say, you should have tests and and two, your tests should pass before anything goes into this branch. Can I, I'm going to stop. No, I, I'm, I'm stopping throwing new stuff at you, but, but <laughs> BLT. You are like a rabbit hole generator. BLT has, BLT has stuff that does this already for you. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to point out. It takes a little while to get set up with it, and this is a whole other episode. What BLT is oh and my what you do, but oh it's my worth gosh. it. It's worth Stop it. Stop it! Stop it! You are you're out of control. You've had way too much coffee already. Very good. So Ryan, I can't thank you enough um, for joining me, and uh, we're going to have you on a very near future podcast. And I, just because I'm going to say the name of the topic doesn't mean you get to start talking about it right now. <laughs> I'm just going to introduce the topic. <laughs> trunk-based development, which is something I know very little about. And um, earlier, before we started recording this, um, I said I wanted to wait a week or so before we recorded that 
because I wanted to do some research and you insisted I didn't need to do any research because you were going to tell me all about it. So um, that's what we're going to do. I am not, I'm going to go into this one cold like our listeners and uh, the, in a future podcast, you will hear Ryan teaching us all about trunk based development. So Mr. Price, thank you very much for joining us. Stay healthy. Um, give your kids a hug for me and we will see you on a future podcast. Thanks so much. Welcome to the Change Notice. I'm Chris Weber. This is a recurring segment that focuses on the changes that are evolving the Drupal code repository. Each change has its own story, why it exists, how it's made, made by hardworking developers, developers like you. Today's recording had its beginnings at a Drupal camp. While walking to lunch from an excellent session, two developers began a sharing of perspectives of a talk that led to a sharing of past experiences and expertise. Gaps of knowledge were discovered, and that led to a backlog of topics to research in the future. Now at home researching, when blockers in this new knowledge were uncovered, the developers reconnected to clear the confusion and allow the knowledge to be realized and shared wider. This process of sharing knowledge helped us craft three things that may or may not have had a large impact, but I thought were kind of cool. Number one, the documentation and help initiative could use your help. A relatively young initiative has the potential for making a really large impact for new and existing users of Drupal. The goal of the documentation and help initiative is to improve the Drupal evaluator, developer, and site builder experiences through improved documentation on Drupal.org and improve in-application help via a new topic-based help system. The initiative has already been successful in producing the experimental module, Help Topics. This module seeks to evolve Drupal's help system, which historically has only provided module overviews. The new system intends to provide modules, themes, and distributions, a means to distribute documentation that admins and users can use in productive ways. While existing today as an experimental module, there has been a lot of progress towards becoming stable. Now is the time to try to expand modules with more help topics and provide the initiative with valuable feedback so it can grow stronger. Number two, overridden test methods require void return type hints. While writing tests for Drupal 9, you should make sure that doc blocks of your test methods document what they return, that they return a void. A backward compatibility shim was added so that when porting your code from Drupal 8 to 9, all your tests won't break more than they should. But this protection will be removed in Drupal 10 so it's best to include this step when making your modules Drupal 9 compatible. It probably is a good idea 
to not only address code that was deprecated in Drupal 8, but also code that is starting to be marked as deprecated in Drupal 9. Number three, Contrib database drivers can now be in the module's namespace and source directory. A change targeting Drupal 8.9 and above. Previously, you needed a, to copy additional database drivers from a contributed module to Drupal Core's drivers directory. No affordance was made for build systems that didn't automate this manual step. Now with the change notice 312-3251, Drupal will now discover database drivers when put in the Drupal module name driver namespace and placed in a module that meets Drupal's standard discoverability requirements, one that has a .info.yaml file. And now for something new. Here are some other things I noticed. QED42 provided a really great summary of Drupal 8 and Drupal 9 changes. QED42 recently produced a blog post with a nicely formatted list of changes to APIs and modules. I recommend you don't be too alarmed by the list of modules that Drupal 9 no longer needs. The important bits of modules that are leaving us have either been reorganized to other modules, or in the case of SimpleTest, we evolved to handle their job some other way. And now for shout outs. Big shout out goes to Dries Boyatart for pledging to match individual donations for saving the Drupal Association up to $100,000. Although the coronavirus crisis continues around the world, we all need to band together to save the Drupal Association. Please consider donating as we need to raise $500,000 by this fall. Stay tuned to the Drupal support page for an indicator of how much we've raised to date. Shout out to Matt Glamen, who recently released Contrib Kanban, a tool that can assist the ongoing development of contributed modules. Thanks for helping us all do our work better. Shout out to Amy June Heinlein, who has been a steady contributor to the production of Drupal Camps and an excellent conversationalist. Thanks for making us all be better. This has been the change notice. If you have feedback, please include it in the comments below. We can make this better next time. Bye. I hope you are enjoying the change notice as much as I am. Thank you, Chris, for yet another outstanding episode. Much appreciated. Well, that wraps up episode 229 of the Drupal Easy podcast, the longest episode we've had in a while. I blame that squarely on Mr. Ryan Price. Just a couple of quick announcements before we wrap this thing up completely. And that is, first of all, our professional local development with DDEV workshop, our two-hour live online hands-on workshop that we hold monthly. The next one will be offered Tuesday, May 5th. 
You can go to drupalizy.com slash ddev for more information about that. Our biannual, twice a year, um, Drupal Career Online long-form Drupal training program, 12 weeks, all online. You get to meet with me two afternoons a week to learn all the best practices. Well, maybe not all. A lot of the best practices about Drupal 8 site building and development. The next semester begins August 31st. And as always, if you want to subscribe to our podcast, you know what to do. I'm not going to say it again. Go to iTunes, go to Google Play, blah, 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 blah. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next Drupal Easy Podcast. See ya!